Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to 1 Timothy, the first chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 1, toward the end of your Bible, it's just some small books that remain before the book of Revelation, 1 Timothy. If you're trying to find, you're like, I'm not sure where it's at. If you start seeing Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you're getting close. If you start to see Hebrews and Peter and John, you've gone too far. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a letter written by Paul. The Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy, a young church leader. We don't, I guess we don't necessarily know his exact role. Suffice it to say that Timothy was a, a leader in the church. So whether he's a pastor or, or an elder or a bishop overseeing multiple churches, the, the first century church is hard for us to dissect and fully understand Uh, But we understand that Timothy is given uh, a place of responsibility in the church, and Paul is over him. We see this throughout, uh, actually throughout the book of Acts, and in Paul's writings, he talks often of Timothy. Uh, This letter is written to Timothy, and the relationship between them uh, is one we draw from Scripture, is one of a relationship of father and son, uh, a very father and son like relationship between them. Four times in First and Second Timothy, Paul refers to him as child, uh, varying forms of that, my child, my true child. And he's always referring to Timothy being younger than him and in the faith. He says at one point, my true child in the faith. So we, we, we come to understand that Paul had some very close connection to Timothy. He writes of his mother and his grandmother. He acknowledges that Timothy had been trained and brought up in the scriptures and uh, understanding how you've been taught and the faith that was instilling in you. So there's a very close, we don't know exactly what it is, but there's a very close relationship between them. We understand Paul to be older. Now, best guess is that um, at the writing of this, Paul is around 60 Uh, This is debatable, so just for frame of reference, he's maybe he's 60-ish years old. And Timothy uh, is likely even a little more debatable, but it's it's not unlikely that he's maybe 40 to 50-ish years old. So there's not a great chasm, uh, but there is definitely a a youthfulness between uh, surrounding Timothy and from Paul in his writings. We also uh, draw Timothy's youth from Paul's encouragement to him uh, that would become the greatest slogan for every youth group for the rest of time, where Paul says to him, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. And so I think we draw great encouragement from this. Regardless of our age, we know what it's like to have people look down on us. And the word of Paul comes to Timothy saying, do not let anyone look down on you, but set an example. Uh, So even in that, there is the principle of Don't let anyone look down on you, and if they do, don't retaliate. Set for them an example. And Paul would say, in life and faith and love and speech and impurity, set an example for the believers. So, um, well, I guess whatever age you are, if you still feel that you qualify as young, the word of God comes to you and says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. We draw his youthfulness. It is a letter, certainly, to a younger church leader. 
he is writing to him in 1 Timothy specifically, but also in 2 Timothy, the two letters, they're maybe a year apart in time. Maybe he wrote 1 Timothy. They think he wrote it after his first imprisonment. It's believed that Paul was in prison twice and, uh, in Rome, and they think that Paul wrote 1 Timothy after his first imprisonment. We know that 2 Timothy was written during his what would be final imprisonment. Uh, he writes to him and talks about being imprisoned. Uh, and in fact, 2 Timothy is the last known words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote 2 Timothy... And then he was executed uh, after, sometime after. So he didn't write anything more. It was his last letter to the church. But he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, encouraging him and helping him to establish order in the church. Uh, specifically, Timothy is in Ephesus. So when we read about the Ephesian church in Acts, what chapter, I'm going to say, 20, maybe, neighborhood of 20, 19, 20, somewhere in the book of Acts. When we read about the church of Ephesus, Paul goes in there, and there are wreck, there are idols, there's all kinds of things happening. This awesome verse, the word of God kept prevailing among them. They start turning over just witchcraft and confessing, and a great work is done in Ephesus, and a church comes out of it. People are saved, and a church comes out of it. And Paul sends him back. In fact, you can see, 1 Timothy chapter 1, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia remain at Ephesus. So that's where Timothy is at. And Paul writes to him addressing all kinds of things. First Timothy addresses leadership in the church, membership of the church, benevolent care of the church, sound doctrine in the church, false doctrine in the church, how to handle false teachers, how to care for good teachers, and even, I don't know how he does it, the last days. Like, Paul like puts a ton in these short chapters in 1 Timothy, writes a bunch to him. Look, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, considered by some and, and myself, I agree with this uh, assessment that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 are key to this entire letter. Look what it says. I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy, soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Some versions you may be reading say pillar and ground. Some may say pillar and foundation. The reality here that Paul is letting Timothy know, look, the church of the living God made up of God's people is the last stand for truth in the world. And I'm writing this to you so that you will know how to act in the household of God. Early in the letter, under God's inspiration by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul, Paul writes very encouraging and insightful words about the work that God does in Paul's life, indeed work that God does in the life of all of his people. A lot of times when we read from the Apostle Paul, we are scratching our heads. He's hard to understand. His theology is deep. It's extremely rich. It's confusing. We don't get it. You know why? Because God wrote it through him. That's why we don't understand. It's spiritually discerned. He writes, but God did a work in him. And he praises God for it. He talks about that work incredibly insightful words. You ever read these things and think, man, I just, I kind of wish 
man, maybe God would do that work in my life. That, that I could be used in some way, like I, I read the Apostle, I could never be used, but like the Apostle Paul. Well, you could, because the living God has saved your soul in the same Holy Spirit that indwelled the Apostle Paul when he was converted and placed his faith in Jesus Christ, repented of sin, was baptized and started preaching the gospel. The same Holy Spirit abides in us through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's turn our attention, if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as we open your word, desiring God that you would teach us from your word. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the way that you have worked through him throughout the ages. Your word came through him and today comes to us and we say thank you for your word. Father, we pray that as we read and seek to understand, God, that you would cultivate in our lives the awareness of what you are doing, what you have called us to, the reason. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that through the preaching of your word this day, you would humble sinners to repentance. I pray that holiness among your people would be promoted, and I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Titled the sermon, For This Reason, comes right out of verse 16. For this reason. I received mercy for this reason. That's what we're going to be exploring today. What is the reason? I have... I think, I don't know, two or three points to make here, maybe some sub-points. The first we're going to deal with is that, first, the Apostle Paul recognized that something happened outside of himself. Christ does a work. The Apostle recognized that something happened outside of himself. Look how he starts in verse 12. I thank. Why? Why is Paul thankful? He says, I, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because... He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I thank. There's a necessary ordering that has to happen here. Sometimes we're tempted to read God's word and just read it as it's, as it's written, which we should. I'm not advocating that you read the Bible as it's not written. I'm advocating that you read it as it's written. But I'm also advocating that we probably could all do with some refreshers in English. I did not pay attention in English classes when I was in school. And so, if you have ever read anything that I have ever written... This has become painfully aware of to you. My punctuation's terrible. I have typos all over the place because I didn't pay attention in English class. Um, but we would do good to pay attention. Now look how he says it. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. There's a, a necessary order here. Paul was judged faithful. 
Paul was appointed to service, Paul was strengthened. We read it at face value, and we should. I thank him who has given me strength because he judged me faithful, appointing me to to his service. It's necessary. Paul was judged faithful. Why? How are we judged faithful? What is the basis or the merit for our faithfulness? It's Jesus Christ. We place our faith, our hope, our trust in Jesus Christ. We repent of a life of sin. We die to that life. We are born again to a life of righteousness. We are judged faithful because of the work of Christ in us. Judged faithful. Appointed to service. We're going to tackle that a little bit later on. You can just, if you want to, uh, if you want to just side note that or whatever, we're going to come back to appointing to service and deal with that a little bit. Then he says, and given me strength. Paul was first judged faithful. He was appointed to service and he was strengthened for the service that he was appointed to. I thank him. It's obvious to us already. Who is him? Christ Jesus our Lord. It wasn't Paul's own estimation. This is, we need to pay very careful attention to this. This is not Paul's own estimation of his strength. This is not Paul's own estimation of his faithfulness. He did not appoint himself. He was found faithful, judged faithful. Christ in him produced faithfulness from him, judged faithful faithful, appointed to service, given strength. This was not up to any other person. And so we become acutely aware in the room right now, the person to your right and left is not going to judge you faithful, strengthen you, or appoint you to service. There will be support. There will be encouragement. There may be the recognition of God having done a work in your life that brings you into some form of service. But it is ultimately always Christ who judges faithful, appoints to service, and strengthens the life of his people for the glory of God. It was not up to Paul. It was not up to any other person. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that did the work. Paul is effectively saying, Christ judged me faithful. Christ appointed me to his service. Christ has given me strength. The apostle recognized something happened outside of himself. Christ did a work in him. I pray he's doing a work in you. I pray that someone will step into the work of Jesus Christ today. The second thing, Paul recognized that what happened had nothing to do with his past. I don't know about you. I've had to let go of my past on a number of occasions. Paul recognized that what happened, Christ did a work, and Christ did a work that was not based on Paul's past. Christ does a work. What is that work? Christ saves sinners. Look at verse 13. Verse 12, I thank him, strengthened, judged faithful, appointed to service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. A blasphemer. Said untruth about what was true. A blasphemer. A persecutor. Uh, The Bible uses language like Paul uh, in Acts chapter 8 or 9. It uses language like Paul, still breathing out murderous threats. Paul is, before his conversion, known as Saul. And he's a Jew. He tells us this. I, I was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the law, knew the customs. People tend to think that based on their past, that they, or worse yet others, could never be used in God's service. 
this must stop. And if it only stops among us, praise God. I pray for an infection to bleed out to other people that we stop basing the future effectiveness of God's people on their past and begin placing the future effectiveness of God's people on the Holy Spirit where it has always been. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent among blasphemy among persecution and, and insolence, just that anger, contradiction, contempt for. The Bible tells us that Paul wasn't a good speaker. I've considered this before. There, there's a possibility, it's less than this, there's a possibility that I speak better than the Apostle Paul. And all those who listen to me are like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says, the Bible says he was not a good speaker. He's not eloquent. He did not come with eloquence. We see him fight arrogance. He, he admits to this. He fought arrogance. When he was first saved, Christian disciples were afraid of him. He comes to the disciples. Barnabas brings him. They're like, whoa, Ananias doesn't even want to go. The Lord God comes to Ananias and says, uh, go to the street that is called straight, to the house of some guy that I can't remember. And there you will find a man named Saul. He's been praying, and I've told him that you're coming. And Ananias, straight up to God, is like, no. I've heard of this guy, and now he's here. I'm not going there. God says to Ananias, so yes, you are. For he is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. And Ananias goes, and he says, Brother Saul, I have been sent by God that you may receive your sight, and something as scales falls from his eyes. The Bible says that the apostle, he's, he's converted in this miracle moment of conversion, this radical, perhaps most radical conversion in all of history. He's baptized. What does that mean? You know what we never find in the scripture? I, I, find it for me. Come and find me later and tell me where you found it. We never actually find Paul actually repenting of his sin. He doesn't write about this. Luke doesn't write about this. That's never actually recorded. But what is recorded? He was baptized. And what do we know of biblical, scriptural baptism? It follows the profession of faith in Jesus Christ and a repentance of sin. It is a, it is a symbol, a sign. It is showing the work that has happened. All of the promises of God are, are realized. It's not that they're waiting for that moment, but they're realized. I am a child of God, and I am only a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance of sin. So we can understand that in that moment, because you know what it says in like the very next verse? He sat up, took food, nourished his body, and immediately went and began proclaiming Jesus resurrected as the Messiah. One day he's going to lock up people and it says there's a number of days. A few days later, he's now saying, wait, I was so wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. I've met him. Holy smokes. But it wasn't based on his past. Can you imagine? In churches today, maybe in this one, people are judging other people based on their past and what God can do. I, I've grown up with this. I've seen it in church my whole life. It's not bad enough that people already put this on themselves, which we're going to deal in a minute. We all of a sudden start to think, first, it happens here. God could never use me. I'm such a sinner. 
And then we start to look out because we think that our sin is not as bad as another person. We say, God could never use them. But the Apostle Paul is like, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Not a good speaker. People were afraid of me. And God did a work in him. Look what it says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Received mercy. For the note takers in the room, or maybe you go to church and you hear words all the time. And you're like, what, is, what do those words mean? I was, at, I was at a conference this past week with a bunch of really smart dudes that were speaking. And they were using big words that we were like looking up left and right. What's, I don't know what that means. Mercy and grace are simple words, but let's understand them in a biblical context. Paul says he received mercy and grace overflowed for him. Mercy. Mercy is not being given what is deserved. When mercy is shown on you, mercy is not being given what is deserved. Grace. Grace is being given what is not deserved. Paul says he received mercy. Grace overflowed for him. Look what he says. Because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Ignorantly in unbelief. You know what that means? He didn't know. Can you remember, remember Christ's words on the cross? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. There is a major difference between ignorant unbelief and willful disbelief. I'm not preaching a sermon this morning on willful disbelief, but there is a major difference between ignorant unbelief and willful disbelief. Most of the people you know that are not Christians, that are resistant or are hesitant to the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him, are acting in ignorant unbelief. Paul he says, I received mercy. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. And I received mercy because of ignorant unbelief. He didn't know. He didn't understand. And he was a Pharisee. Like to break down Pharisee, this dude knew the law of Moses. He knew the religious customs of his people. He, think about this. You've probably never thought about it because I thought about it this week and was like, oh my gosh. Paul was waiting in hopeful expectation of the Redeemer. We only just ever view him as just this, he's an awful guy, he's a terrible person, he's hating the church, and how can he, oh my gosh, he's radically transformed, and oh my goodness, and we're like, yeah, Paul. Paul, before his salvation, was eagerly expecting the arrival of the Messiah but he was ignorant and didn't know. He acted, he lived in ignorant unbelief, a Pharisee. He'd never been instructed in the way. He'd never been told the truth about Jesus Christ. Let's look at his own words. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts, chapter 26. We're just going to take a, a quick snapshot from, from Paul's life. In his own words, as recorded by the Disciple Luke, who was not really a disciple of Christ, but he examined all things and gave an accurate accounting, so he's recording the gospel of Luke. He is a disciple because he was following Jesus, and he followed Paul around and wrote it down. Look what Paul says about himself, Acts chapter 26. We're going to read uh, just a few verses here. Look at, look at verse 4. 
4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. Pause. Do you understand the context of what he's like? I would have to teach for an hour to give you what all of that means. This guy is a, this is why he writes, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My manner of life spent from the beginning at my birth among my own nation. I never left Israel. And in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. Now he's talking about the Jews that are gathered there with him. Verse 5, they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Look down in verse 9. He keeps talking about his past prior to his conversion. Verse 9. I myself was convinced as a Jew, unconverted. I myself was convinced that I ought to do, look what he says, many things in opposing the name of of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, and here comes the change. At midday, O king, he's testifying before Agrippa. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Fully man. Remember the note from last week? Fully man. Fully man. Speaking in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You're resisting, Paul. What are you doing? Saul, his name's here still. Verse 15. And I said, who are you? Ignorant unbelief. You've read this passage a thousand times and thought, why does does Saul look up into heaven and say, who are you? Ignorant unbelief. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, praise God, and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul's own words. Ignorant unbelief. Most of the people that you know who are resisting God's word today, who are not in church, who you are concerned for their salvation, you are concerned for their eternal life, if they die right now, you're going to stand in a room with people and say, I don't think they knew Jesus. And they're doing that because of ignorant unbelief unbelief. Rare are the people, but they're going to start increasing. Rare are the people who willfully, absolutely not, that's a lie, I say no. But that's going to start changing for us. 
Because as the end draws near, people will in mass start turning away from. This is part of what Paul writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. They will no longer want to hear the truth of God. They will no longer want to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. They will want to hear what pleases them, what satisfies them. They will abandon the truth. They will go off into myth and ignorant unbelief will become willful disbelief. Ignorant unbelief. Never instructed. How could he have been? I, did, I was doing some research. Here's the math, just to help you. If we say, which we do, probably shouldn't, if we say that Christ was born in zero, can we go with one? I have a hard time saying zero. Let's go with one. Let's say Christ was born in one Anno Domini, which we don't think he was. Who knows? And if he lived for about 33 years, we're pretty sure on that one. The Apostle Paul was born... In roughly, best guesses, four or five. Okay? Did you click that just now? Christ is on the cross at 33 years old dying for the sin of the world. And Paul is like 28. 50 days after Christ is crucified, a great persecution breaks out against the church. And the first martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death. And they were throwing their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I have speculated. I think that Saul was a witness to the life of Christ. But do you know that Saul was not? He was not instructed in the way of Christ. He's acting in ignorant unbelief. Never instructed, never taught. Ignorance. Ignorance. Look what he says. I had acted in ignorant unbelief, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says it is because of who God is. Did you see it? We read over it and you missed it. It's so simple. It's right there. Paul is saying, I received mercy and grace overflowed for me because of who God is. Look what he says. Grace overflowed, 14, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We want to read it as I received mercy and grace overflowed to me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He gave me faith, he gave me love and grace and mercy, and I obtained it. But what he's saying is, I received mercy and grace overflowed for me because of the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, which is extremely reminiscent of a verse that we have talked about a lot, and we're going to talk about it a lot more. Paul, having been Saul, having been a Jew, would have been so thoroughly acquainted with the life and law of Moses that he would have known, as we know, Exodus 34, where God says to Moses, I am God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Paul here makes that connection. The God of Moses is the God who poured out mercy, poured out grace. They came with the faith and love that are in Jesus. It is because of who God is that a work happened in my life and that salvation came to me because God is a God of love and faithfulness. And then the certainty. 
Look at the certainty he moves into. This, the saying, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I grew up memorizing this in the New International Version. The saying is trustworthy and true. No lie. No error. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says no second guessing. There's no uncertainty. This is the reason Christ came. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. No uncertainty, no second guessing. The purpose of Christ, the message we preach, Christ saves sinners. I thought about giving you a bunch of handouts because there are points that I want you to grab a hold of, but one of the things that I want you to hold on to is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. As we talk about the reason, we're going to explore the reason, Paul says, for this reason I was appointed. Christ saves sinners and not just sinners. Look what he says. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... Among who I am the foremost. I'm the worst. I'm the chief. The Greek word there is the word protos. Do you know what we get from that? The word prototype. Paul's like, I am the prototype sinner. You know why he says that? Do you know why Paul says that? You've read it and you're like, Paul, why do you think you're the worst of sinners? All of us are sinners. We all deserve the same thing. We're all mess-ups. Paul, why are you saying you're the worst? Because he is the worst they had seen since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Since that happened, I'm the worst one. I've set the bar so high, good luck hitting it. And oh, we have. Oh, we have. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. The chief. The foremost. Not just sinners, the worst of them. Do you feel those words this morning? The worst of sinners. And the reality is that many people do feel those words. God could never love me. God could never save me. If you only knew, and Paul jumps in like, I'm really good at cutting people off when they're talking and so I apologize to you. I recognize it. I'm trying to find a support group to help me with it. You're helping me. Thank you. I'm really good at interrupting people. And right in the middle of, you don't understand, if only you knew, Paul jumps, he's like, wait a minute. I am the worst of sinners, and I received mercy. The worst of sinners, and I received mercy. Many feel those words, I, I am I'm not a good person, I'm terrible. And hearing these few simple words, I hope that you feel the weight of your sin. I hope that you would desire to be free from that. There's a song we sing. I love the words. I don't think we dwell on the, on the words we sing often enough. I'm the worst of sinners. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender 
is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. What do I do? I feel as though I am the worst of sinners. And you're saying this God, man, if he loves Paul, maybe me? Like, what do I do? The Bible says to repent of your sin. Turn away from your sinful living. Whatever that is for you, whatever that sin is for you. Some live gross, immoral lives. Turn away from it. Some have a problem lying. Turn away from it. Some people gamble all of their money all the time, and some people are in drunken squalor, and some people are simply cheating on paperwork. Turn away from it. Turn away from whatever your sin is that is contradictory to the life that God calls us to. Turn away from that. Repent and turn instead to Jesus Christ through faith. The gospel is a simple message. Through faith, trust Jesus. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Confess Jesus as Lord. Romans says you will be saved. Paul recognized that something happened outside of himself. Christ does a work. Paul recognized that what happened had nothing to do with his past. The work Christ does is saving sinners. Lastly, kind of, the apostle recognized why this happened. Christ sends workers. I received mercy. The worst of sinners, verse 15 Christ came to save sinners. I'm the worst of them. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I received mercy, he says in verse 16. It's the second time in these few short verses. Verse 13, I received mercy. Verse 16, I received mercy despite being the worst of sinners. Reinforcing again that mercy is not deserved. Mercy is not earned. Mercy is given by God. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy is not something that you can spend a lifetime on your feet pleading to God to get. He gives it. He gives mercy. It's his to give. It's not yours to ask for. It's not yours to take. It's his. I have mercy. I am God. I give mercy. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, and I received mercy. So every single person in this room who's like, God could never love me. Oh, yes, he can, because he loved the worst of sinners and gave the worst of sinners mercy, and I promise you as bad as your sin is, you're not the worst of sinners. And God gives mercy for this reason. Look what he says. I received mercy for this reason. You don't just get mercy so that you can live a good life and be free from the sin that you are in. God gives mercy to his people for a purpose, for a reason. Look what he says. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, that when people look at me, that when people talk to me, that when people observe me, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst of sinners, Christ might display his perfect patience as, look what he says, an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. For this reason, that Christ's 
Perfect patience. I love the word in the King James. If you have a King James Bible in front of you, you have a beautiful word instead of perfect patience. You have long suffering. Did you pick up a bulletin when you came in this morning? I put a quote on the front of it by Matthew Henry. He's just a commentator, writer, guy who was a pastor a long time ago, 1700s or something. The Lord Jesus Christ shows great long suffering in the conversion of great sinners. That in Paul, as the worst of sinners, Christ might display his perfect patience. That Paul, or us, would be viewed as an example of God's long-suffering. That the world around us, living in that ignorant unbelief like the Apostle Paul, living in ignorant unbelief, that people around us would look, that they would learn as an example, Paul says. I receive mercy for this reason, that as an example, people would look and learn. That as an example, people would have a glimpse of hope. Those whom God would save would see how God saves and have a glimpse of hope for their own life. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says that we, redeemed, saved, those with faith in Jesus Christ, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Think about that for a second. In all of the Old Testament, we read this passage earlier from Leviticus, and all of us said, what in the world? We read this passage from Leviticus showing how the priests were appointed to service and how they became priests, and then we understand that the work they went to was extensive and so thorough, and it had to be, and they offered all these sacrifices and sprinkle the blood and dip your finger and put the stuff over here and burn this and discard that. It was so ordered, and in that... The word tells us that the aroma of that would rise to God, pleasing. Was God like smelling that from heaven? The reality to that statement is that the actions there were pleasing to God. They were worshiping in the way he had told them to worship. The aroma of Christ to God. We, Christians, are a pleasing smell. When our aroma hits the nostrils of the Lord God of heaven, he smells his son the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the aroma that we give off to God. And verse 16 goes on to say, we are a fragrance from life to life for those who are being saved. We're encouraging. We provide hope. People enjoy our presence, our company, because of what Christ has done in us. The aroma of Christ to God, which brings us back Right back to that phrase in verse 12, appointing me to his service. The overall point, the apostle recognized why all of this happened. Christ sends workers. The sub-point here, Christ appoints his people to ministry. Now, I know that you all came here today and you were hoping that Pastor John would be the one standing up here giving you a message because this is his job and this is what he does. Wrong. Could have been any man up here. Any man of God could have opened the word of God with you today and encouraged you. Do you know why? Because ministry in the Christian church is not the pastor's responsibility. He's just given the oversight of it. Ministry in God's church is the responsibility of God's people. You are workers. 
If you are here today with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been appointed to his service. And I hope that becomes brutally clear through these next, I have no idea how many scripture references that I'm going to absolutely just do, 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 do out to you. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, one that we're famous to know, says that Christ, the Lord Jesus, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers We've dealt in the past with apostles and we've dealt with prophets and there's a lot of gray area around what exactly are they, do they exactly exist anymore. We know for a fact that evangelists still exist in the world. God has people in whom the Spirit of God has given the ability to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that I can't understand. We know for a fact that God is still appointing men to be shepherds of local bodies of believers here and throughout the world. We know for a fact that there are classes in schools that need teachers, and so shepherds and teachers are still absolutely appointed to service in the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but why? But why? Well, so that I could go to church on Sunday morning, hear an encouraging word, and then go eat my ham. No. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, you and me, to equip us for the work, the service of ministry. We understand from his word, God makes apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds. We understand the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes you a pastor. We don't make a pastor. I've told the membership of the church here as we've been praying through and pleading with God, God, would you raise up more men to serve as elders within our church? Father, would you bless us as we desire to follow your word with a plurality of men, a plurality of shepherds, a plurality of pastors to care effectively for your body and make sure that we are on the mission that you have given us to preach the gospel. We have pled and pleaded with God over and over, but I cannot give you what the Holy Spirit has not given us. The Holy Spirit does that work. We know that that is God's work to do. That is specific workers. The problem is that in our mind, especially in America, we have turned the specific work of shepherds and teachers into go talk to the pastor. I'll ask my pastor. Go do this with the pastor. See this? Like, I'm thankful for this body of believers. If you're here today as a guest, I want you to know that I love the Village Church. You know why? Because I get phone calls all the time from people who are like, Pastor, I was talking to so-and-so. I hope it's okay, but they asked this question. I started to answer them. More, please. Not so that I have an easier week. That's what service and work of ministry of the saints is all about. We do that together. We are learning. I am not here above you. I am not a part of a hierarchy in this body of believers. I am one part of this body called to teach, and we are all called to the work together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God created us in Christ Jesus for what? What did he create us for? Good works service. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, not say it's the pastor's job. I'm so glad you don't, nobody does that here. But listen to me. I have a lot of brother pastors. And they live in ministries where that's the pastor's job. Have the pastor do it. Call the pastor. Like, I'm so thankful that you don't do that. You're, you're, you're good. You're good Christians. Thank you. Created in, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 tells us there are varieties of gifts, varieties of services, varieties of activities, and it goes on to say in verse, I think, 11, actually, God empowers, makes them work in everyone, not just the pastor. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writing to the churches scattered in Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, all over some place north of modern-day Turkey. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to proclaim. Peter doesn't write to them saying, hey, keep doing the good things you're doing. I will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. No, we are to do that. He says that we are a chosen race, a holy nation, a peculiar people linking to the people of God in the Old Testament because God only has one people. He says to the nation of Israel, I will be your God. You'll be a holy nation. You'll be a chosen nation. You'll be a peculiar nation among the peoples of the world because I have chosen you. And then First Peter in the New Testament brings those two things together in dramatic fashion and says we are with them. Peculiar, appointed, chosen to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mark 16, 15 says to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, verse 19 says to baptize believers. This is not just my work. If this all rests on one man, we're doing something extremely wrong, but believe me, you, that's happening out there in the world where it's all resting on one or two men in some church somewhere. Simply, if you're a Christian, Christ has appointed you to service in his kingdom. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, each has a gift. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus for salvation, repentance toward God, each has a gift. 1 Peter says, serve one another. Pastor, I, I would serve. I don't know who I'm supposed to serve. Look around you. There's, I mean, we put up 150 chairs in this room every week. There's, there's a solid 100 people in here. Pastor, I don't know who to serve. Start with the person next to you. Start in your home. Branch out from your home and have your home serve another home. Serve the Christians that are around you. And then as you're serving the Christians that are around you, you know what's going to happen. Do you know what is going to happen? Absolutely by default, as God builds his church and he does work. Do you know what he reveals happens? We're going to start affecting other people. And then that's going to start to spread. Not because we've done anything other than say, we believe in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll follow you. Serve one another. Look, as good stewards of God's grace. Ouch, there's an ouch in here. If you're not serving one another, you're poorly stewarding God's grace to you. Ouch, ouch, ouch. If you are not serving one another, you are poorly stewarding God's grace in your life. You're a bad steward. No one wants to stand before God and have him say, you are not a good steward of my grace to you. Each of us have a gift. Serve one another as stewards of God's grace. Verse 11 goes on to say, serve in the strength God gives. That in all things, what is the point of our service? That in all things, God may be glorified through Christ. Appointing to his service. You're appointed to his service. Apostle Paul was appointed to his service. This isn't us just reading about the Apostle Paul being strengthened because he was faithful and appointed to his service. Has God found you faithful? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you sitting here today, Father, I believe that you raised Christ from the dead. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of my life and I am following you to the best of my ability according to your word and the Holy Spirit in me. I am yours, appointed to his service, every one of you. Every one of you with faith in Jesus Christ, appointed to his service. Why? Paul says, for this reason. Do you see it? When people look at you, when people hear you, when you orbit the life of other people, are they learning that Jesus came to save them? 
Do they understand that the hope that you have placed in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, do they understand that that's available to them? Are, are you the aroma of life to life? We may not be blasphemous, violent people, but we are sinners. And in saving us, this is what the message of Paul's message is here, in saving us, God displays his perfect patience to those he will save, and they can look and say, man, if them, maybe me. Is anybody looking at your life and thinking, maybe me? Maybe the God they love. Maybe the God from whom mercy came and from whom grace overflowed to, maybe that God could love and save me. You've been appointed to his service for this reason. Christ does a work. The work is the salvation of sinners. Then Christ appoints you to work. Missionaries all over the world, we are praying over Mark and Francisca, Lord, lead us, teach us. Missionaries everywhere. And Christians, there are infinitely more Christians in the world today in churches that are praying for missionaries to be sent somewhere. That should make us all say, you are appointed to God's service. That when any person in the world sees you, they may think, if them, maybe me. Christ came to save sinners. In light of all this, wrapping up today, closing today, we're going to sing one song recognizing God's mercy. In light of all this, Paul closes this short little section. It's boxed in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. He has nothing else to do. It's like, it literally, for me, it erupts off the page. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. I pray, God, that you would strengthen your people. You have appointed us to your service. Father, first, forgive me. I pray that you would save the souls among us that you would save. Save them, God. We desire that the people in fellowship with us coming to this church, that we know, Father, we plead with you for their salvation, knowing we cannot bring that about. It is your work. But, oh, Father, that you would, through us, display your perfect patience. Father, we thank you in our life for the patience we have experienced from you. We deserved death and your judgment. We received mercy. Grace overflowed for us. Oh, Father, that people around us would see 
that mercy, that grace, it's available. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the dry and weary and parched land of a sinner's life is transformed and in him streams of living water flow. Father, you are good. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We pray, God, that you would find us faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find us faithful in bringing glory to your name. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.